Archiver is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council and is a member of the Fountain City Frequency family of podcasts. Anybody who's ever boxed a bet, read a racing form, or just watched a horse race on TV knows what this episode is about. Hell, if you've just seen Seabiscuit, a terrific movie, by the way, you also know. We're talking horse racing, something not associated much with Kansas. But for an amazing two minutes and four seconds in 1938, a horse from Johnson County was the top three-year-old in the land, owned by a man who was better known for suits than stallions, and had an odd connection to Kansas City political boss, Tom Pendergast. We're at Churchill Downs with 60,000 sports fans for America's racing classic, the Kentucky Derby. Ten of the country's cracked three-year-olds parade to the post. Number one is Lauren, leading with Fighting Fox, number five, and Bull Lee, number six. And those two are the outstanding favorites of the crowd. The podcast is Archiver, the episode, Derby Day in Kansas. Me, I'm your host, Sam Zeff. The horse was named Lauren and was trained at the 200-acre Wolford Farm, which is now part of Prairie Village, right around 83rd and Mission Road. Lauren came from a pretty good line. His grandsire was Sir Galahad, a French horse, and one of the most important sires in American racing history. Lauren was not only the only Candace-bred horse to ever win the Derby. He gave a big boost to the careers of the man who trained him and the jockey who rode him in the 64th running of the Derby in 1938. Wolford Farm was named after Herbert Wolf, the president of Wolf Brothers, one of the most important clothing stores in Kansas City history. More on all of them in a moment. But first, archiver historian Virgil Dean says there's more horse history in Kansas than you might think. Yeah, I, you think about the fact that Kansas was uh, uh, settled in, you know, in the 1850s. That's when it was opened up to Euro-American settlement. You could go back further and look at the adaption of the horse by native plains tribes and the, and the Native American inhabitants of the region. But certainly when people started moving into the Kansas Territory in the 1850s, obviously horses were important to people at the time. They were the prime source of power for transportation and for agricultural purposes. Uh, but from the very early on, which is something that's kind of probably more surprising to me, you have an interest in leisure time activities or competitions with regard to horses. And of course, state fairs and or state and uh, local fairs are important in the agricultural state of territory and state of Kansas from the very beginning. And so as early as 1858, before Kansas is a state even, uh, you have the first county fair that we think we think with the first one in Leavenworth County. And there's an emphasis, on, among other things, on horses. Uh, they don't mention horse races, but they have a, a category of race horses, along with draft horses and others, uh, for premiums at that county fair. So it's it's not too surprising in that way because of the importance of the horse that you would have an interest in this other kind of activity, too. We usually think of, I think, of the 19th century people struggling to make a living and just get by. You know, it's a hard scrabble existence, and it was just for some people. But there's also always an interest in leisure activities, recreation, having fun, and uh, fairs and other kinds of community events where they could have these competitions were were important. I'm wondering if uh, horse racing as an industry didn't take off in Kansas because this was a state that 
that was uh, uh, big into temperance, certainly anti-gambling. Uh, and so it doesn't take off as an industry. While you, you had horse tracks uh, in Missouri, certainly in Riverside, there was a big horse, uh, horse racing track. Do you think that the, uh, the morality and politics of Kansas kept, it, kept horse racing as an industry out? Uh, or was were we all just uh, too worried about how we were going to plow fields? I think that could be it. I hadn't really thought about that, but it could be the the uh, opposition to and laws and, and attitudes towards uh, betting and ho- on horse racing and other kinds of activities that would keep it from becoming the kind of industry uh, you mentioned. Prohibition, you know. Um, Growing grapes and wine and beer and brewing beer were big things until 1880 when Kansas passed prohibition. So it's not a, not a stretch to think that that probably had some impact on it. Uh, but despite that uh, opposition to gaming uh, into the 20th century and through the 20th century, uh, you would continue to have uh, people interested in in you know have farms that were devoted to horses and in raising horses and breeding horses and training them as well. The 1938 Derby was run on May 7th. It was partly cloudy and the track was fast. Lauren was an 8-to-1 long shot, even though the Colt had a pretty good year. He had already won the Hialeah Stakes, the Hollywood Trials Stakes, the American Invitational, and the Flamingo Stakes before the Derby. Here's how British Pathé Newsreel reported the race. They're off with Mountain Ridge, Fighting Fox, Meenow, and Lauren, quickest to get going. That's Lauren next to the rail. And as the field sweeps down past the stands, Fighting Fox, Mountain Ridge, and Meenow set the pace. Lauren is close up, but Dauber and the popular Bull Lee are in the rear. Rushing to the first turn, Meenow and Fighting Fox are head and head, with Jockey Scout trying to restrain Fighting Fox. And so Meenow goes to the front as the race enters the long back stretch. At this stage, Lauren is running fifth, while Dauber is not yet in the picture. Meenow opens up a good lead, and as Fighting Fox fails to respond, the big crowd sees Lauren move up with a rush to take the lead in the stretch. That's Lauren in the middle. Meenow over there next to the fence is tiring, and it looks as if Lauren will win all by himself. But here, on the left, the outside horse is Dauber. He's coming with a late challenge, but Jockey Arcaro takes no chances and drives Lauren hard. Dauber tries gamely, but Lauren, the Colt from Missouri, will not be denied, and Lauren is the Kentucky Derby winner. First, you can forgive the Brits for not knowing the difference between Kansas and Missouri. It's puzzling now for some in Kansas City to know which state they're in. But here's how the Louisville Courier-Journal described the scene. As Lauren entered the winner's circle with 22-year-old Eddie Arcaro aboard, and owner Herbert Wolf thrilled with the come-from-behind win. Straw-hatted, wearing a dark blue suit and a maroon and gray-striped silk tie, Mr. Wolf made no secret whatever of the fact that he was just about as elated as it was possible for him to get, the paper wrote. He waved at friends, swung his heavy binoculars in a carefree manner, and when little Eddie Arcaro rode Lauren up to the tan-barked Flower Edge Plaza and into that magic circle, Mr. Wolf strode forward and gripped the jockey's hand as if he were a long-lost friend. The headline the next day in the Kansas City Star simply said, It's our derby. The subhead was flashier. Lauren's winged feet bring turf glory to Herbert Wolf and Kansas City. Arcaro told the Star 
he thought Lorne was better than War Admiral. Amazing praise in 1938, when War Admiral was half of one of the greatest rivalries in all of sports. I'm going to veer a little bit from Kansas and talk about the rest of the horse racing world in 1938. So neither the Derby, nor the Preakness, nor the Belmont Stakes was the biggest race of that year. That goes to the one-on-one battle between War Admiral and Seabiscuit. The fact that Arcaro would even suggest Lauren was on par with War Admiral would have been big news in 38. 40 million people, including FDR, listened on the radio. Here's how Clem McCarthy called the match race from Pimlico on November 1st. It was so crowded, Clem couldn't make it up to the broadcast booth, so he called the race from the rail. It's horse against horse. Both of them driving. Seabiscuit leads by a length. Now Seabiscuit by a length and a half. Wolf has put away his whip. Seabiscuit by three. Seabiscuit by three. Seabiscuit is the winner by four lengths. And you never saw such a wild crowd. Seabiscuit the winner by four lengths. Trying to drown this crowd out here. They're roaring around me. Seabiscuit was the winner from end to end by four lengths. A couple of additional notes about the Lauren win. Eddie Arcaro would go on to become one of the most famous jockeys ever. Lauren was his first of five Derby winners. Arcaro is the only jockey to win two Triple Crowns. The Kansas Colt was trained by Ben Jones, who would also go on to fame at Calumet Farm in Kentucky. By the way, Lauren had no chance at a Triple Crown. Wolf did not register him for the Preakness or the Belmont Stakes. So while there wasn't much horse racing history or action in Kansas, just across the state line, there was plenty of horse track action action that would lead to the downfall of the political boss of Kansas City, and an unexpected connection between Herbert Wolf and boss Tom Pendergast. So Wolf's rise to business prominence in Kansas City roughly coincides with the ascent of Pendergast as the machine boss in the city. The Wolf family moved its clothing business from Leavenworth in 1879 and opened shop at 5th and Main. About the same time, the Pendergasts were creating their political dynasty in the West Bottoms. Herbert would take over Wolf Brothers in 1915 and expand the business into Junction City, Wichita, Dallas, and Memphis. Tom would take over the machine from his brother Big Jim in 1925 and expand it into, well, almost every political office in Jackson County, and much of Missouri. They both loved horses, but for very different reasons. I wanted to know more, so I went to this man. I'm Jason Rowe from the Kansas City Public Library, and my job here is digital history specialist for some of our projects, including Civil War on the Western Border website and a soon-to-be-launched website called The Pendergast Years, Kansas City in the Jazz Age and Great Depression. While Wolf loved riding and breeding, Pendergast would turn out to be an inveterate gambler on horses. His addiction was so severe that he and associates opened the Riverside Jockey Club just north of Kansas City in 1928. In just one month, Boss Tom lost $600,000 at the track. Riverside was so important, it plays a role in the final scene of the 1973 film, The Sting. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Arnold Rowe calling the third race at Riverside Park in Kansas City. This is a claiming race for $1,500 for three-year-olds and up. It's been raining and the track is muddy. The flag is up. 
And uh, they're off and running. Dr. Twink is going to the front, followed by Lucky Dan, I'm a Dreamer, Orkin, Josie G, Chi-Chi, and Little Star. I'm a Dreamer by one, followed by... Sorry, Josie but you couldn't G, wait. Chi-Chi, Everything going all right? You've got nothing to worry about. Dr. Twinkle Link, I put it all on Lucky Dan. Half a million dollars to lend That's Ray Walston as J.J. Singleton as the crew plays the big con against mob boss Doyle Lonigan. The Riverside track, Jason Rose says, was just kind of legal, like most things Boss Tom touched. Around 1927, the Supreme Court of the United States had, had issued a ruling that kind of created a loophole for gambling on horse racing where you could make basically a donation <laughs> to breeding horses. It's somewhat like the, the loophole that exists today that if you participate in a raffle for charitable purposes, that's not legally gambling, even though you are buying a ticket and maybe you could win something. Um, that's very similar to the loophole that, it, that um, Pendergast was able to take advantage of to open this, this racetrack in Riverside. And um, really at its heyday, um, right from the beginning, they uh, were have running, um, it was two seasons per year in spring and fall, and they would have um, upwards of 17,000 people attending at this track. So they had these grandstands set up that were all built out of wood, and they would run daily um, races, six to eight races a day for a month, <laughs> twice a year. And that's how, um, when Pendergast lost $600,000 gambling himself, um, he did it in, in one of those one-month concentrated time periods. <laughs> and that made him really desperate um, once he lost all of this money to um, take more risks. And that's how he got involved in this insurance kickback scheme at the, with the state and some insurance commissioner and um, some insurance businessmen who um, agreed to pay him this money for his involvement. And is it the Riverside track and that big loss that starts to uh, kill the machine? It is, not directly though. Um, so what, what really got him in trouble was not so much the kickback scheme, but the fact that he didn't report the income to the IRS. So he was arrested for tax, tax charged with tax evasion, um, just like Al Capone. So it was the accountants that got him in the end. <laughs> Tom pleaded guilty to tax evasion in May 1939 and spent 15 months in Leavenworth. His boss days were done. But here's the unexpected connection between Wolf and Pendergast. After boss Tom got out of prison, he still had five years probation to serve, a common part of any sentence. On August 13, 1943, a letter was sent from the office of federal judge Merrill E. Otis, the judge who sent boss Tom up the river. A group of important Kansasidians wrote the Justice Department's pardon attorney, asking that Pendergast be released early from his probation. Banker James Kemper wrote a letter. So did developer J.C. Nichols, as did Monsignor Thomas McDonald. Also advocating for boss Tom, Herbert M. Wolf. Did Wolf write because the two had some business connection, political connection, 
or maybe it was a horse connection. To this day, nobody knows. And that's Archiver. The podcast is produced by Matt Hodap in the studios of KCUR 89.3 in Kansas City and is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. Archiver is a co-production of Fountain City Frequency and Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seelan is executive producer. You can see pictures of Lauren, Herbert Wolf, and Boss Tom at FountainCityFrequency.com. My thanks to Jason Rowe from the Kansas City Public Library for his help. And hey, if you like the podcast, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. For my favorite Kansas historian, Virgil Dean, I'm Sam Zeff, and I'll see you on the next Archiver. <laughs>